You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 173 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm very well, thanks, Val. I'm good. Actually, you know what? I'm good. There you go. I've got an answer. <laughs> my edit is done. My edit is over, everyone. Oh, my God. Take, yes, I know. Let's all just have a, you know, a gin and tonic and relax because yeah. my edit is over. Well <sighs> So done. I'm good. Yeah, I'm really okay. good. Have, what did you do to celebrate or what are you going to do to celebrate? Oh, um, <laughs> just breathe a deep sigh of relief. and You need you know. to do something to mark the occasion, Al. Well, I didn't mark the occasion when it actually happened because, as you know, I was doing, um, you know, various, uh, I, I, you know, I, I've had a full week of school talks stuff. and all the talks and all sorts of stuff. Uh, no, but to be honest with you, I think I'll, what I'll do is probably I'll just have a day. I'll give myself a day off next week. I think I might nice. just give myself some time to actually, um, yeah, just not think about stuff. Because, you know, when you've got something like that to do, you just it's, – it's that worst thing of like when you're a kid – and you had that homework to do and it's like you weren't, oh. you know, you, it just, you know, that it hangs over yes. your head constantly and it's Sunday night at 7.30 yes. and you still yes. haven't done it. It's that feeling but it goes on for weeks and weeks yes. and it's massive, you know. So it I is. think I'm just going to, yeah, give myself a day off to go, well, that's done. But then, you know, there's always, there's just going to be the next one. I'm just. <laughs> go have a facial or something. Treat yourself. I might do that. I might, yeah, yes. I might sort of mark the occasion with some small thing. But, yeah, it's just uh, honestly the sheer relief of just sending it off is, is almost enough of a celebration in itself, I Well, think. well done, everyone. Have a gin and tonic for Al. <sighs> yes, please do. Or, you know, your beverage of choice. I, I'm, I'm not going to be too spoiled <laughs> about this, whatever it is, green tea, oh. whatever you like, yeah. All right, we have a shout-out from someone with an awf- awesome l- name. Okay. Yeah. Her name, ready for this, is Laura Luck. As no in way. L U C K. Luck. How good's that? That's fab. Yes. So Laura, Laura Luck has left us a review on iTunes and has called it Thank You for Keeping Me Company. And she says, Honestly, I don't think I could have better company on my morning walks through Launceston, Tasmania, other than my pup Rosie, of course. Thank you for always producing great content for me to listen to while I traipse down the Tamar River. I must also mention that without this podcast and the How to Build a Successful Copywriting Business course, I did that through the Australian Writer Centre. I wouldn't have had the guts to go full-blown freelance writer. Thank you, wonderful ladies. From Laura Luck. How fantastic. Yes. Well 
well good done. Luck with your, good luck with your freelance work. That's right. Big luck. clap for, yeah. for going full-blown freelance, yes. And thank you so much for taking the time to leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating, on iTunes. We'd love you for it because it helps us in the rankings. It now, does. episode 173, which this is, is a mini-sode. And a mini-sode is exactly what it sounds like, a mini-episode that we drop in between our regular programming, where we often answer listener questions and sometimes have mini-interviews. So our listener question this week is from Leanne. And Leanne says, Hi, Val and Al. I absolutely love the podcast. It keeps me sane on my daily commute and keeps me inspired and makes me feel part of the writing community. My question. I have no trouble with discipline. If I'm writing, I write every day. If I'm editing, I edit every day. I've read lots of books on craft, taken courses, and have read and am connected to authors. I only attend a few in-person events because I'm a shy, quiet type but I'm looking to improve on this. I have been writing seriously for five years and more than that, sorry, and more before that, and just don't seem to be improving enough to make my work of a publishable standard. I write contemporary women's fiction and have completed four manuscripts and have started a fifth. Besides just keep writing, which I will, what else can I do to improve and keep my momentum? Perhaps a mentor or what? And uh, Leanne has said, I've had my work assessed and has been told it requires improvement. Um, she also says she's submitted, you know, to publishers and, um, and you know, not uh, and been rejected. She's also entered various uh, R- Romance Writers of Australia contests and the helpful feedback is that, the writing needs improvement. Um, so yes, this is a very good question. It is Val. Uh, about how are you going to answer it, Val? <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, how are you going to answer that question? I think first ten points, well, a hundred points to you, Leanne, for recognizing that you want to do something about it. A lot of people who do get feedback, especially a lot of people who've written four or five manuscripts, think that just the mere fact that they've written four or five manuscripts means that they're good at what they do or that they can do they can write novels. But 10 points for you for recognizing that, okay, you've got quite a lot of feedback that says you need improvement and you're wondering how to improve. Now it says that you've done um, read books and taken courses and then that sort of thing and that you have had your work assessed and they're all really valuable things. I think that you need to drill down to those people, the people who've assessed your work or given you feedback or whatever, where you can to get specifics from them in Mm. where you can improve. And I realize that's often when you do a manuscript assessment, you just kind of get that one lot of feedback. You don't necessarily get to ask a whole heap of questions sometimes, depending on who you've used uh, as your manuscript assessor. But what might be useful is a couple of things. Um, One, and this is sort of – uh, it takes it takes a bit longer this way, is if you join a writer's group who can provide you feedback. But I think mm. if you can join a course that is a workshopping course, so not just a writing course that talks about different types of writing techniques, but the specific nature of the course is to workshop your novel and provide feedback on your novel because then you get into actual specifics on, well, this needs improvement because – of this reason, this reason, and this reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this structure needs improvement because 
of this reason, this reason, and this reason. So yeah. something like um, we have at the, at the Australian Writers' Centre, we've got a six-month course, which is called Write Your Novel. And, one, and yes, you definitely learn techniques through it, but one of the key features of the course is the workshopping nature of the course, where mm. you workshop other people's work, but they workshop your work as well. It sounds like you need that you need not just feedback that it needs improvement, but the specific areas in which it needs improvement so you, that you can work on those areas. Because otherwise yeah. just this blanket statement that, that it could do with improvement is nice, but uh, then you can't actually work on the specific things where you might be weak. So I think that definitely some kind of structured workshopping um, and not just a one-off assessment, even though that's valuable, but structured workshopping over a period of time where you can get that feedback and rewrite it and then workshop it again and then get the feedback is sounds like what could be ideal for you. What do you think, Al? Mm. Oh, I agree. And the other thing I, that might be helpful, because it, it, as you say, you know, I'm told it requires improvement, is very. it's very hard to know what to do with um with feedback like that, because you go, okay, you get you get it back, and it's like, well, it's not it's not quite right, and you're like, yeah, and yes, and then there's sort of no no response just to to why it's not quite right is probably the least helpful kind of feedback mm. you can actually get. So my suggestion might also to be to look at um, somebody like uh, is to perhaps get. I mean, I'm assume, I have to assume that your fourth manuscript is probably what you would consider to be your best work as opposed to your first manuscript because obviously mm. we get better with these things as we go along and we learn how to do things as we go along. So I'm assuming that perhaps you've started your fifth manuscript but perhaps your fourth one is, is your strongest to date. Um, it might I, it, I would probably look at paying for a structural edit on that manuscript um, yeah. And I think at, from an actual proper editor, because to me, that's, I remember that getting my first structural edit on a manuscript was about the most valuable um, learning op- opportunity I've ever had because I was horrified. I was so really? horrified. Oh, I got 13 pages of notes as to wow. what, was wrong, what was wrong with this thing. And it's, it's a really, really, it's a, it's a big wake up call because it shows you, yeah, because at the end of the day, what's often at fault with something like that is particularly with women's commercial women's fiction. I think it's very hard to get it right. You know, lots and lots of people, contemporary women's fiction, they write it because they understand, they think they understand it and they, it's, it's, you know, probably the closest thing to them in real life, but it's very, very, it's very hard to get it right because you still need within that novel, you need a high concept. You need, you need an, you need that pull out, you know, three sentence, one, one sentence, three word slogan type thing that, that says what this book is about. Because I found what was happening with mine when I was writing, uh, particularly this novel was people would say, what's your novel about? And I'd start explaining, you know, it's about three women and they do this and they blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, what's your novel? Like, tell me what your novel is. Mm. And, and I couldn't. I couldn't do it because it, it didn't have a strong enough concept. I didn't have a strong enough concept. It was like, you know, small towns and it was people growing and it was all those. I mean, I could give you 50,000 different two little, you know, whatever, but I didn't have a strong concept of what it was. And I'm wondering, just reading between the lines of whether this is perhaps a problem, Leanne, and which, if that's the case, I would strongly suggest getting somebody like Nicola O'Shea to pay mm. for it to do mm. a structural edit. 
not just a manuscript assessment, but an actual structural edit to say, this is where your problems are. It's your plot. It's your structure. It's your dialogue. It's, you know, you don't need these scenes. This character is completely useless. You know, that kind of stuff. And, and that yeah. pulling your work apart like that is the quickest way to learn how to put it back together. I mean, and, and it's, That's it's true. brutal, Leanne. It's brutal. I will yeah. tell you that. But I'm thinking that maybe maybe having done four and now starting a fifth, maybe now's the time to have a look yeah. at it because it might just be that it is a massive structural issue that you're having, maybe. I, th- I agree 100%. I think that now because you have written four and yeah. you're on to your fifth, this is the time to seek out brutality. It's yes. the time yes. to, to actually really look for the people who are going to be so honest with you because yeah. that is going to be the quickest way to learn yeah. because people often try to – you know, tiptoe around the edges because they're afraid that they're going to really (laughs) stress you out if they're too honest. But I think because you're really keen to learn, this is now the time to seek out brutality. Yeah, and this is where you're going to get stuff like there's some nice writing in this but I can't see the point of your novel. All your characters sound the same, blah, 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 and you're sitting there going, but what do you mean? But in actual fact, you know, you've got to think about how it reads to someone else. Now's the time, Leanne. Absolutely. Go for it, Leanne. Good luck and let us know. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's move on to our writer in residence. We have a mini interview this week, Al. Now, when I came upon this book, I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get this book. It's called The History and Uncertain Future of Handwriting because I like sort of Stuff like that, you know. I know you do. You, you're you're often bringing cursive writing to our yes. to our <laughs> to our podcast. All right, so, handwriting, good. Yes. So I spoke to the author Anne Trubeck, uh, and Anne does in her book go through, um, you know, all the history of handwriting from when it was on, uh, you know, tablet form to ancient scripts to um, moving into, you know, the Gutenberg press. Well, not quite. You know, the the human Xerox machines she calls them. The people who used to just copy stuff out um, because that was their job, and on to present day. So. Anne was was a hoot to talk to, and um, let's well let's just have a listen to Anne. Thanks for joining us today, Anne. Oh, thank you for having me. Now I have your book in my hand: the history and uncertain future of handwriting. Now this is very specific a subject, but one that um, I'm really fascinated by because I've always been interested in handwriting. Interestingly enough, now um, where are you? First of all, where are we talking to you from? Where are you based? I live in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. Now, what in the world inspired you to write a book about handwriting? Well, two factors came together. One was in a previous life, I was a professor and I studied the history of writing technologies and how cultures change when, say, the printing press was invented or the typewriter. And so I've always been very interested in uh, handwriting and um, its cultural importance throughout history in the West. And then I had a, um, a child who was seven or eight and learning how to handwrite in school. And I was so surprised and interested in what he was being taught and upset at some of the struggles that he was having. And so I thought, hmm, 
and should marry these two uh, interests of mine together and, and write about this. And so when did the idea form and how in the world did you then start deciding, well, what would go in, I mean, into this book? Because there's handwriting is such a broad subject. And how did you kind of determine what would end up being the thread in the book and how you would structure the book <coughs> and subsequently how you would go about, like what you would research? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the first thing I did was I wrote a short article about uh, the topic that was just sort of saying, hey, why are we spending so much time on handwriting in elementary school when the rest of us are just typing and that's what these kids will be doing when they grow up? And I got such strong responses back from that article. And mm. I found that the responses fell into certain categories. There were certain things that people were interested in. There were certain things I wanted to, to better explain. And so I sort of used that interest that I saw from people in this topic to structure what I would write in the book um, and, you know, sort of answering their questions in my head, as it were. Uh, and then ultimately, um, I found chronology was my friend and that just to, to work historically was going to be the easiest way to, to lay it out for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so then where does one turn to, uh, where were your main sources of research? Did you go all over the place? Did you have, find some kind of amazing handwriting museum or, or did you have to get your information from lots and lots of disparate places? Yeah, lots of places. As I said before, I had, I had been a, a scholar, a researcher of, of a larger uh, topic, so I already knew a lot about where uh, people had written about this topic before. So it's a lot of history. Mm -hmm. um, there's a field called book history, um, which looks at the history of the book. And um, so I sort of went through um, that academic research um, to find out what I could about handwriting in, in particular. And then I also talk about different uh, aspects of contemporary aspects of handwriting. And I did, you know, go talk with people and go visit some places um, for those chapters. But a lot of it would be I would have a research question and I would find one source and then that would lead me to another source. And so I, I think ultimately it was a pretty conventional research project that way. So there's a lot of research that has gone into this book. Can you give us some, just a rough idea of the timeline? Like you conceived the book at what, at, you know, a certain point, some time later you wrote the magazine article, some time later you decided, yes, I'm going to write it. You researched it for X number of months or years and then the amount of time to write it. Can you give us just some idea of how long all of this took? Long or short? <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't quick. <laughs> I think the first um, piece, well, I'll tell you this. Like, I was inspired to write the book when my son is seven, and he's now 17. So, oh. uh, well, I was inspired to write about the topic. So I wrote the um, first article probably about uh, nine years ago or so. And then about a year later, I, or, I wrote a, a longer uh, article about it again because I was getting so much feedback from readers mm. 
And so I, I wrote, you know, a, a long magazine article and that just exploded. Just so many more people were interested in that. And that was, so that was maybe a year later. And then maybe two or three years later, I decided to uh, propose to do a book on the topic. Um, and then I needed to find an agent and then I needed to have the agent sell the manuscript. So that was another block of time. Um, and then once I had a book contract, um, this is a probably an atypical story. So I wrote the I wrote the the first draft in a, in about a year, mm-hmm. but then my editor was a very busy man, and it took him a year <laughs> to oh. get back to me. Wow. And so then I wrote revisions, and then it was another long time before he got back to me. So the the process was very slow after I had actually drafted the manuscript. But that's not really a story about writing. That's a story mm. about publishing. Sure. Um, Wow. Yeah. And tell us how a lot of people would be interested to know, because you just said, well, I had to find an agent, because um, in America that is much more necessary than in Australia. But so do tell us how you went about finding an agent. Um, well, there's lots of different ways to do it. Uh, I, what, I, what I did was I... Um, had met an agent many years earlier when I was uh, about a different project. Um, and we didn't end up working together, but we had a great conversation. And uh, I had a sense when I was working on this project that it was the kind of thing he liked. So I sent him what's called a query email. But basically it's an e- email that is pitching the idea. Um, and then if an agent thinks that the idea for the book is interesting and that he or she can get an editor interested, then, then they'll sign you up as a client. Um, so basically it was an email. It was a, (laughs) an email to someone I'd met years earlier, um, who does this kind of thing. And so when you were researching the book, is it, where did you discover some surprising facts that you just went, really? Can you share some of those with us? About handwriting and the evolution of handwriting? Sure. I think the thing that really um, I found the most fascinating, I knew the least about before I started researching, were ancient forms of handwriting. So one of the first chapters is on cuneiform, which is the writing system that was used in um, Sumer, ancient Mesopotamia. It was the first writing system ever, and it's really a series of marks and slashes done on clay tablets. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh is written in cuneiform. And I just found it absolutely fascinating to learn about it, um, to realize that people had these tablets that were tiny, that they taught uh, kids in school how to write on these tablets very much the way we still teach children how to write today. Hmm. Um, and that actually uh, a tablet, if you wrote on a tablet, your handwriting was not a way to indicate who you were, didn't, didn't show your personality. In fact, every single cuneiform tablet that's been discovered has the identical uh, look to it. You mm-hmm. cannot determine one writer from another because they mm-hmm. worked so hard to have it all look standard and, and as, you know, as much as, it, as like machine made as it were as possible, although obviously it wasn't made by machines. They didn't have machines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, in fact, what uh, distinguished 
people, uh, the way that they authenticated their identity was from stone seals that they carried around and they would press the seals into the wet clay um, as a sort of signature. Um, and uh, I, I just absolutely found that fascinating. And um, other, other things that I found out about um, ancient forms of writing that actually didn't make it into the book, such as you know Mayan and Mesopotamian writing systems, um, I just thought, how did we not know all, well, how do we not know more about this? So that was really fun. Mm. So what was your purpose in writing this book? Well, I wanted to tell the history uh, mm-hmm. of handwriting, and I wanted to say, look, you might be anxious or worried or concerned about how little handwriting people are doing today. Mm. But it's okay, because in previous times, people have had the exact same sorts of worries about a a way of writing when a new form of writing shows up, and everything turns out fine. Um, (laughs) And so I really wanted to say, don't worry so much. When the printing press was invented, the monks thought that printed books would be the end of knowledge and everyone would get less intelligence and intelligent and it would be terrible. And we look back now and we say, that's ridiculous. And people will look back and, and say that we're being a little bit ridiculous in some of our concerns um, over handwriting today. Now, you obviously discovered or um, researched many different forms of handwriting or script in that process did you kind of think oh you know what actually that one was actually really efficient I wonder why we didn't stick to that was there one that stuck out that just made a lot of sense do you know what I mean that's a good question um you know the truth of the matter is that the alphabet is by far the most efficient writing system that's been invented. It's just 26 marks that Mm. indicate sounds. And, you know, if you compare the alphabet to, you know, Hebrew or Cyrillic or Mm. um, Chinese or Japanese, you know, you realize that, wow, that's pretty brilliant. Um, So I think that in some ways I'm lucky because I'm somebody who has always, you know, practiced what is already an incredibly efficient writing system Mm. um yeah okay and so are you now working on another book i'm not right now i am Mm -hmm. to be honest very happy to be (laughs) free (laughs) of that very you know looming large kind of project i'm working on Mm. um shorter pieces and i'm letting my mind wander and um I'm, i'm looking forward to when i i happen upon a topic that I can't wait to spend five years on. Um, But right now I'm not ready for that yet. (laughs) So when you were in the depths of this and you were writing your first draft and, uh, and you know, in that year or, or, and also when you were doing your revisions, can you give me an idea of your typical day? Because I just imagine just being overwhelmed by the sheer volume of research because there's a lot of good stuff in this book and there's a lot of research you must have done. And how did you approach it? Like did you – because you can't retain all of that in your head and you then kind of start writing. How physically on a practical level did you approach each day? Did you divide it up into 
<clears throat> you know, um, eras or did you, and then attack it that way, did you uh, aim for a word count every day or did you just write and see where it went? Yeah, great questions. Um, uh, I, well, I was never able to only be working on the book, right? I had other things, other jobs and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I've never been one of those people, as much as I would like to, who sits down and writes 500 words a day. You know, you read endless writing advice. (laughs) You must do this. You must write every day. The only way to be, you know, whatever. That doesn't work. I think (laughs) we all have our own ways, uh, um, and everyone works differently. And I think it's a danger to, you know, read too much of this advice and think there's something wrong with you if you can't, um, uh, follow it. What works for me mm. is to set deadlines in the future, say, you know, um, you know, today is, uh, February, well, it's the end of February. I say by the end of the March, you know, I'd say I'd, I'd give myself, you know, I need to have X done. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, that works for me. So then some days I might not do anything on it. And some days I might work for 16 hours straight. Mm, and, um, wow. I would work chapter by chapter. So right. it would be, you know, by the end of February, I need to get the chapter on Egypt done. Um, so it's very much by chapter. And I would, mm. um, you know, you, you also have to realize I, one of the other problems with writing advice I always read is people say, we well, have to write this much each day or whatever. And I'm like, well, when are you doing the research? Right. So, you know, it it may be that I have I would have done the research, all the research for a chapter six months earlier and taken notes. And then six months later, I say, okay, now you have to go through all that research and write it up by X date. And so the research and the writing, I I don't I didn't do all the research first and then start writing. I would do a little I would do some research on one chapter. Then I might write another chapter because you I find it too overwhelming to write something as soon as I'm finished researching, I need it to sort of settle a little right. bit first before I can go back to it. Now you have a chapter called digital handwriting. Um, can you tell us what you mean by digital handwriting? Well, one of the fascinating things is that the internet makes handwriting much more accessible. So most of handwritten manuscripts that we have are in libraries and then they're in archives and then they're under lock and key. Paper is a very fragile writing surface. So it's papyrus or vellum. Those clay tablets, they, they're great. They last, you know, you can throw them out the window and they're not going to break. Um, but, uh, for, but most, you know, handwritten manuscripts in the last two, three, 300 years um, are very brittle. And they've only been accessible to a researcher who might have to write in advance and get access and they have to have a reason to have access. So it's been very limited to be able to have access to this knowledge. But what librarians and, and archivists are doing now is that they are, they're taking those uh, very precious manuscripts and they're scanning them. Then they put them back under lock and key. And meanwhile, they have the ability to scan them and put them online so that we can all see them. Mm-hmm. And they also can um, input the data. Uh, they can transcribe what's written on the manuscript and add it into the uh, data, which means that when you're searching for a topic, suddenly for the first time ever, information that might be on that handwritten manuscript from 1750 can be found by anyone searching. In fact, there's <laughs> this isn't a handwriting example, but a great example of this is just yesterday, somebody found a novel by Walt Whitman that had been lost. 
And he found it because he was doing some research online and somebody had digitized a newspaper and through a very, you know, various string of events, he realized that the newspaper had printed a novel by Walt Whitman that no one had seen before. In this same way, the Internet's going to allow us uh, to discover a, a lot of new things because these precious manuscripts um, that have been hidden away can now be accessible to anyone. Plus, we can yeah. look at them. They're often very pretty. Yeah, by absolutely everyone. That's fantastic. Now, finally, just a little bit of trivia because we've always, we've often heard of, you know, the phrase, put your John Hancock here. And <laughs> it's actually an American term, but in Australia, most of us don't know who John Hancock is <laughs> or why in the world we even say it. <laughs> so, oh, but you say it? Yes, yes, people you know. You say it in Australia and you don't know why you're saying it? Well, some people might know, but it's definitely a phrase that is definitely heard here. And no, we know that it means write your signature here, of course. But I would never have guessed that Australians say, put your John Hancock here. That's yeah, you, fascinating. You, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, not, not all Australians, but definitely you hear sure. it. Um, so perhaps if you can enlighten our listeners of where in the world, who in the world's John Hancock and <laughs> why do we say this? <laughs> John Hancock was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and he signed his name larger and more clearly than any of the other signers of the Declaration of Independence. So if you look, at the declaration or, you know, you, you can find endless, you know, images of it online. You will see a bunch of tiny little words, which is the declaration. Then you'll find a bunch of tiny illegible names at the bottom. And then you will see very, you know, clearly in big letters, John Hancock. And so because of that, um, his signature has become, you know, a, a, a symbol of signatures in general. And yes. so that's why you use the term John Hancock. <laughs> well, he certainly wanted to make his mark. All right. Well, and on that note, thank you so much for talking to us today and really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been great fun. There you go. Anne Trubeck um, and her cool book. And I, d I just thought it was kind of funny, though, that, that Anne thought it was hilarious that um, – as Australians, we also use the term John Hancock, which I suppose is a bit strange when you think about it. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> yes. But then again, we've you know we take on so many things from the yes. states without even realizing it that you know I guess yes. it's not really a surprise. But yeah, I'd never thought about the origin of that though. Yeah, ever. I know. In the history of my life, have yeah, I ever considered yeah. that the origin of why your signature was your John Hancock? I never thought about it. Now we all know. Now we all, all know. All right. So that brings us to the end of our mini-sode. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And awesome. you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, -O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to connect with me on Facebook as well. Just search for Valerie Koo and I'm the one in Sydney. And, of course, you'll find uh, the show notes to anything we've made reference to in the podcast at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 